hey everybody and welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This has been kind of an unusual month for us. It's been four or five weeks since we've been on the podcast together, but I'm back with Terry Fakes. Good to be with you. And uh, we've spent some time traveling. We've been together in Colorado. We've been traveling separately, doing various things in the summer. And so I wanted to just check in with you and and uh, have the two of us just check in with our listeners. What have you been teaching, reading, studying the last few weeks? Well, I just finished a series on the Gospel of Mark. And one of the things I challenged our students and myself was to forget everything you know about Jesus and let's pretend we've never known him and what would the gospel of Mark tell us and you know for me anyway I can only speak for me it made Jesus pop off the pages of that gospel the first half of it talks about the power and the might and the miracles of Jesus And then the second half talks about how he takes that power and he subverts it. He basically sets it aside for our sake. It was very emotional for me. It was very eye-opening for me. So I love the Gospel of Mark. After that, I did what I usually do is take about a month break in the summer and get through my reading list. I'm sure all of our listeners probably have a stack of books they're waiting to get to. And so while we were in Colorado, I was able to read uh, oh, several biographies, which were very, very interesting to me. A biography of Harry Truman, biography of Angela Merkel. Uh, I was able to catch up with uh, some of the religious reading that I wanted that didn't have anything to do with a the lesson. They were just things I personally wanted to learn. So it's been a great month for me. How about you? Well, and it would, hearing you say that reminds me of our podcast on the Gospel of Mark. And it's kind of sad. There's so much I still want to say, but we can't do it until we do 60 more of these or something like that until we come back to the Gospel of Mark. But <laughs> I always love I always love the way that Mark simply introduces you to Jesus. The theme is in the first verse, and then he goes on to prove it for uh, the rest of the book, uh, which is always really enjoyable to get to study. And I, I love the approach that you guys took of uh, just... Uh, imagining if you were reading the Gospel of Mark for the first time, what would you have thought? Uh, right. That's that's always an exciting thing to do. So on vacation, I was I was hitting a few different things. Uh, one of the high points for me was Peter Lightheart's new book, The Theopolitan Vision, which I would love to podcast about at some point in the future. It's a short book. It's a almost just a, uh, an overview of uh, the Theopolis Institute's ecclesiology. Lightheart's Ecclesiology, really, really fantastic. Read a memoir by Mary Norris, who affectionately goes by the Comma Queen, and it's called <laughs> yes. Greek to Me, about her travels studying Greek. It was just a great vacation read. Um, the other thing is, I think since we've been on the podcast, uh, I went out to the 50th anniversary of the Churchill Museum in oh, Fulton, yeah. Missouri. How was that? So we get out there, and it's a celebration of the Iron Curtain speech that Churchill made. And it's the only nationally recognized Churchill Museum outside of Britain, or at least in America. Yeah. So uh, we went out there, saw that. It was really, really cool. Got to meet and talk to Andrew Roberts, who's the keynote speaker at at the convention. But he also has just published a big volume on Churchill. 
so getting to talk to him was pretty cool. Getting to hear a little bit about how he writes and the process he went through to write that uh, was pretty awesome. So I went back and worked through that book again. And uh, I would, I would, it's a thousand pages, so it's a pretty steep investment of your time, but it's, it's pretty amazing. If you're a Churchill fan, it's right up there with the best uh, of history to me. It's, it may be the best, the new best biography of Churchill. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think that Roberts, he's, he started out doing a biography of Lord Halifax, who's a rival of Churchill's during World Uh War II. He did Lord Salisbury. He's done a big volume on Napoleon. He may be the preeminent living European historian uh, today. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to get him on the podcast. I wish we were, but <laughs> he actually did a great podcast with Al Mohler on Thinking in Public a couple of months ago, mm-hmm. and that one's that one's worth a listen. So, this week, as you know from the title, if you've seen the title of this podcast, we want to go through the book of Deuteronomy. So as we're going through these books, our goal is to get through all 66. And the reason we want to do it is because if if our mission is to keep you informed without being conformed, if we're trying to connect the work of the church with the work that we do during the week, then one of the things we have to do is continually grow in our ability to read and understand the Bible. That empowers everything from a worldview standpoint. And we want to hit every part of what God has given us. So some of these Old Testament books, I think Deuteronomy may be one of the more popular ones, can be pretty foreign to us. You just sit down in the middle of Deuteronomy, and sometimes it's difficult to see what's going on or how this applies to our lives now. How much of this do we keep? How much do we not have to observe anymore? And so our goal in these podcasts is always to encourage all of our listeners, and, and it encourages us, too, in preparation, to sit down and really go through the text. So I would... I would hope that everybody would go and read Deuteronomy in the next couple of weeks, and maybe this is the encouragement to get into it. So as we usually do, I want to begin with some of the, almost the wrapping paper around the book of Deuteronomy. Things like, who wrote it? When was it written? What should we expect when we get it? And then we'll dive into the content as we go. So kick us off. What are the things that we should know about the book of Deuteronomy? Well, good point. The Israelites have left Egypt. You saw that in the book of Exodus. And they have some exploits for 40 years in the wilderness. And you see that as you kind of read towards Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy basically is a series of maybe two speeches. I think you'll get into this. But it's a retelling of the law. And Moses pauses as they're ready at the end of the 40 years to go into the promised land, he doesn't just retell them the law. It's actually a little bit of a covenant renewal, an expansion of the law, but he reminds them that they are God's people. Here is what God told them on Mount Sinai, and he prepares them to enter the promised land. So the word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek version of the Old Testament, which means a second telling of the law, or the second time the law is expounded. And so Moses is getting ready to take them into the promised land. He himself will not. I know you'll get into that. But he's saying, before you enter the promised land, after 40 years in the desert, let me remind you of who you are, who your God is, and what your relationship to him is. 
Right. And I think it's really helpful to know what's going on in the life of Israel when it comes to the book of Deuteronomy, especially in, in context with the book of Exodus and the book of, of Leviticus and Numbers. When Israel comes out of Egypt, we obviously just group a lot of what they do into the 40 years in the wilderness. But one of the things we notice when we read through Exodus through Deuteronomy is there are really important moments that Israel goes through. So obviously when they come out and they go to Sinai, they get the law the first time. And we read about this in the second half of the book of Exodus. So that would be the first nomos, the first law. Then they do the wandering, the spies go in, they come out, they're punished. And the book of Deuteronomy opens and it tells us in in chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. So this is, this is actually pretty close to the promised land. And this is important, too. We're going to come back to this later. The language at the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy is really significant for the language of the opening of the gospel narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Absolutely. Uh, because, because we see those also open on the other side of the Jordan in one way or another. So we have Sinai where we get the Ten Commandments. All that happens, golden calf go through the wilderness, and now actually we're close to the promised land. This is another book of Moses, but this one is happening at the end of Moses' life. What date are we looking at here? What else is going on in the world at this point uh, in, in the ancient Near East? Great, great question. So the traditional dating for this is at the end of the 40 years in the wilderness. And so traditionally, and I mean for like 2,000 years or more, the thinking has been that based on the chronology in the Bible, Exodus occurs at about 1447 B.C. 1447 B.C. And so 40 years in the wilderness would date the book of Deuteronomy about 1407 B.C. And so at the very end of the 15th century, you would see the Israelites about to enter the land of Canaan. There has been, uh, from scholarship, oh, a little over 100 years ago and then picked up again in the 20th century, the idea of what's called a later or lower chronology for the Exodus, and that is that it really happened during Ramesses II. If you watch the, uh, the great movie, Uh, the ancient old Cecil B. DeMille movie uh, with Charlton Heston, it sets it during the time of Ramesses II. That would actually put it about 200 years later in the late 13th century, so around the 1200s. And so that debate had been going on for a long time about exactly when did the Exodus happen? Because there are not any specific clues in the Exodus. It just talks about Pharaoh. It doesn't give Pharaoh's name. And then in more recent times with critical scholarship, the thought has been, well, actually, it doesn't matter if the Exodus happened in 1407 or in the 1200s. Moses didn't write it. It didn't happen at the end of the Exodus. This book was written and compiled maybe in the 7th century B.C., so literally 700 years later, Jews are writing this down to record 
or to create, depending on your how cynical you are. They were either recording their history or they were trying to create some kind of history for themselves in maybe the seventh century or later. So depending on scholarship, you have different dates, but traditionally it has been held that Moses wrote this at the end of, literally the end of the 40 years wandering in the desert. But you have been in seminary more recently than I, what are your thoughts on this, and what's the current teaching on it? Well, dating in the in the Bible is always kind of up in the air. New Testament books, it's whether or not it happened in the apostolic era or after the Old Testament. It's whether or not it happened before or during the exile. Those are those are the things that we'll probably talk about again and right. again and again as we as we talk about the Old Testament. Um, I, I'm I'm usually content with the early dating. Mm-hmm. I think the flow of history and scholarship up until the last 150 years is on the side of the traditional early dates. And to me, it's, it's, it's really hard to put the burden of proof on the uh, traditional dates when all, almost all of church history attests to that. Now, I think there are some things that archaeologically can be really helpful and explanatory when it comes to Old Testament events. So, for example, the evidence in the land of Canaan as to when the Canaanite people were there, when you start finding evidence of the Israelites, when you stop finding pig bones, etc. Right. I think all of that is really helpful. Because of that, I would probably tend towards the middle dating, so the the, the 13th century. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm-hmm. Date, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't probably argue about that with somebody who wants to date it earlier. I would argue that the Book of Deuteronomy was composed in in its current form before the exile. I think that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I think uh, just the evidence of scholarship in the language and in the organization, the other dependence on Deuteronomy in the Old Testament would attest to an early dating. Right. The second thing is, in the reign of Josiah, they find the book of the law in the temple that they had previously lost. Exactly. And yes. you, you, know, you don't have to be a logician to figure out if, if they found it and they had lost it and they had used it before that. We're working our way back towards the time of David and Solomon for right. regular use of the law, which I think is the book of Deuteronomy, uh, in the temple. So for those reasons and and, and others, I think that it's obviously pre-exilic. I think it is when it says it is. Now, one thing I do want to talk about a little bit is the editorial prints on the book of Deuteronomy. So there's a big school of of people. This is less common now than it was 50 years ago, but there's Mm -hmm. a big school of people that believe the, the editing was done closer to the exilic time period by a guy creatively called the Deuteronomist. Right. Or a group of people called the Deuteronomist. And there's something from this I think that is true and we should pay attention to, and and the rest of it I'm not really convinced is helpful. But the the theory goes, the writings from Deuteronomy to the end of 2 Kings, uh, with the exception of uh, Ruth, are part of one literary whole. So you have the book of Deuteronomy at the beginning, going all the way chronologically to the time of the exile. At some point in the exile, then, an editor comes along, puts all this together, smooths a lot of it out, makes sure that it all lines up theologically, and you have a coherent whole for the church afterwards. Now, what I think is really interesting about that is 
there is a coherence to that section of Hebrew scripture. And you can really see that when you read the differences between 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, and Ezra and Nehemiah, who probably were also put together by a single author. That's really stark when you read those things next to each other. But the question is, is the best explanation that someone came along after the fact and smoothed those into a continuous whole, or is it more likely that Deuteronomy was the theological, historical, cultural source that everybody who wrote after that, primarily Samuel and Joshua, were looking back on and taking their cues from. Exactly. So while I want to, I want to emphasize that Deuteronomy is the anchor of the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that later, we'll come back to that, uh-huh. and that there's a continuity between Deuteronomy and the books that follow through Second Kings— I don't think that necessitates that we imagine there's an exilic editor who is changing things and smoothing things out. I actually think that coherence came about because people were reading the book of Deuteronomy. God was speaking consistently through the, through, through the authors of the Old Testament, and we see that coherent whole form through the same the, the same version of inspiration we would we would think about when we talk about New Testament documents. Well, you raise a good point there, and uh, I'm just going to get on my soapbox for 30 seconds and say this: the problem with some of the critical scholarship on the Bible, whether it's textual criticism or redaction or criticism about the edit the editing that you've just gotten into is the problem is even if you see books that look similar you can draw conclusions that they were done by a a single hand later or as you pointed out it could be that Deuteronomy became the model the problem with that kind of scholarship is it's not definitive and so to draw dogmatic conclusions from things that have nothing to do with archaeology but have to do with the text, one should be very, very timid about being dogmatic about that. Mm-hmm. One other thing I'd throw in and see what you think, but this is just suggestive of the idea of an earlier date, and that is that this covenant bears a lot of resemblance to some of the Hittite covenants of a king to a vassal a king to a servant called a suzerain vassal covenant or contract. And it doesn't seem surprising to me that God would use a form that was extant at the time to deal with his people so that they could understand what was happening. God is our king. He is making a covenant with us. He is stronger than we are. He is granting us more than we grant him. He will bless us. We will give him loyalty. All those things are part of uh, sovereign vassal covenants. Well, that was extant in the time of the Hittites, which would put you back in the 15th, 14th centuries. And so I think uh, when you look at the structure of it, it's a little bit suggestive that maybe it really is as old as it says it is. Mm-hmm. I now, think that's instructive to understand how the how the covenant works within Deuteronomy itself. Right. Now, I admit 
that people who say, yeah, but I still like a late, late, late date, you know, sometime maybe before the exile, but say the 600s, around the time of Josiah, whom you mentioned, you can still say, well, there was an oral tradition that went back even further. Uh, but at the end of the day, it seems to me that this is a very ancient document that goes right to the heart of the end of the Israelite exile. Uh, whether we say it was written down later and it was oral or was written down and it was edited, but it certainly has the ring of truth at that time period in history. Right. Yeah, to wrap that up, I just just some some wisdom when it comes to jumping into Old Testament scholarship for the first time, there's a lot of different worldviews that are involved in Old Testament scholarship that aren't as prevalent in the New Testament. Now, obviously, you have, you have people in the New Testament who are not believers, who are reading the text, who are writing commentaries, mm-hmm. who are uh, bringing things in that, that we mindsets and things that we wouldn't share. The Old Testament is an absolute free-for-all for several reasons. Obviously, you have secular scholarship more interested in the history and the archaeology. You have Jewish scholarship where we have a large portion of shared worldview, but we don't right. have an entire portion of shared worldview. The two things I always look for is where is the scholarship forcing traditional, historical, orthodox Christians to prove a negative? Where does the burden of proof shift to where if you want to hold the traditional position, you must prove a negative? So for example, you must prove that it was not written in the exile. That's not really a fair intellectual move. Right. So we have the given, which is that this was written when it says it was written, either in the 13th or the 15th century or somewhere in between, uh, after the exodus. Then the burden of proof then, the burden to, to doubt it would be prove that it wasn't written then exactly. as opposed to vice versa. And oftentimes right. when you enter into a, a little bit more liberal scholarship or just from historical perspective, the feeling can be, oh, I, I, I'm the one that has to prove that this was written when it says it was written. No, we can take we can take that it was written when it says it was. And then the burden of proof lies on people who want to say otherwise. Exactly. Um the second thing is a lot of this comes down to a implicit uh, difference in the doctrine of inspiration. So right. if you want to read the Bible as literature from the ancient Near East, that's interesting and it's, it's a good way to do scholarship in certain quarters. But for Christians, we believe that every single word of the Bible was inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for training, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. And uh, we don't believe that the people just wrote it down because they wanted to or because they were doing a travel diary. We believe that the Spirit was leading them to write these things. And so it, it creates a difficulty. This is the same thing in the New Testament when we talk about the pastoral letters. There's a big difficulty in saying it says Paul at the beginning, but we're okay with it not being Paul. That that's a difference in the way that we see inspiration at work. And the same thing is true in the book of Deuteronomy. It claims to be written by Moses standing outside the promised land, getting ready to go in. The doctrine of inspiration would have me say, I think that's probably when it was written. So as we go through more Old Testament books, we'll we'll get into this more. But this is a great opportunity just to lay out that case, Mm -hmm. because if you're going to read commentaries or even if you're going to get into blogs on Old Testament books, there's a lot of people who do not share those two 
worldview values. And that's just something to keep in mind. Not that their scholarship is bad, but that they might be bringing in things that they're not telling you they're bringing in when they begin to study these books. So let's move on to an outline or an overview of the book. The book of Deuteronomy is pretty easy to outline. The first four chapters, one through four, are a speech from Moses that is a historical overview of where Israel has come from, what they've done, the conquest of Canaan, and then an exhortation at the end that leads into the second speech about what God is going to have them do next. Now, Deuteronomy always gets a bad rap for being a, a boring book or, or one that's difficult to understand. I think the first eight or nine chapters of Deuteronomy are some of the most incredible chapters in the Old Testament. Absolutely. Partially because you get this grand exposition of the character of God. So in the first speech, in the first four chapters, essentially what Moses is saying is, hey, I'm going to tell you who God is and what he's done for you since you left Egypt. And if you've read any of the other parts of the Old Testament, you know that the Israelites were not not very responsive to God's leadership in the wilderness. So Moses decides he's going to remind them. uh, Moses reminds them in in verse 6 of chapter 1, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You have strayed long enough. Turn and take your journey. Go to the hill country of the Amorites. And then he recaps how God has set a land before them and has told them to go in and possess it. And then all of the things that happened in between. That's a pretty amazing section of your Bible to understand who God is and what he's like. Yeah, I love the idea of Deuteronomy opening with looking back. This is what God has done. This is who he is. And then by looking forward, it essentially defines who the Israelites are. I'm going to suggest that before this time, they knew that they were ethnically related, that they were part of several tribes who all had the same great-great-great-great-grandfather, but they did not think of themselves as God's chosen people or people with a mission in the world. And when you see the covenant at Sinai, it begins to make a covenant community, a cohesive community who are bound together by more than, oh, my, you know, second uh, cousin twice removed is related to your second cousin. It Mm -hmm. becomes more of a purposeful thing. And at Deuteronomy, it seems to me that after that struggle of faith in the wilderness where they've doubted God and God has continued to prove himself, Moses says, okay, it's time to understand who you are and who God is. So they're looking back, you can see what God has done and who he is. And one of the things I like to say is our faith today for you and for me is built in the rearview mirror, meaning as we look back on our lives, we see the reality of God more clearly than looking forward. And so Moses is going to look back, and then I think in the second speech, you're going to see him looking forward a little more. Mm-hmm. And there's some amazing lines in these first few chapters. The character of God, God reminds them that he is near to them. He reminds them that like a father carries his child, he carried them in the wilderness. 
he reminds them of how faithful he was when they were doing their pre-Canaan conquest of the 60 cities in the kingdom of Og. Right. There's also some little nuggets in here that I think are fun. They're just weird. There's no other explanation for them. But this part of Deuteronomy is one of the the last vestiges of the old world, kind of the pre-flood world. So in the first five chapters or so, you get half a dozen references to giants. This is the, right. this is one of the last times we see giants in the Bible uh, until we get to Goliath. But the the Rephaim, the Anakim, are sons of Anak, are giants who we typically think of as pre-flood type figures. Uh, one of the one of the things I really like is is in verse ten and eleven of chapter three, as he's talking about these cities that they conquered. He says, I'm going to read verse 11. For only Og, the king of Bashan, was left of the remnant of the Rephaim. Those are, those are giants. Behold, his bed was a bed of iron. Is it not in Rabbah of the Ammonites? Nine cubits was its length and four cubits its breadth, according to the common cubit, which is basically what we would call a California king. <laughs> and ap- apparently it's in some kind of museum or something that they can still go see. This is another evidence of, of an early date is... Right an exactly. actual historical reference that they can go check. But uh, you get all these cool little references in there that I that I like, and they take a little bit of digging to figure out what is he talking about. Uh-huh. But uh, the, the vestiges of the old world are pretty interesting. There's, there's two pretty famous passages in this section. The first one is in chapter 4, verse 9. And this really gives you a picture that we often forget of what God actually expected of the Israelites when they were in the wilderness, and even when they got the law, he says, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on that day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. He's obviously recapping the covenant there, but he's reminding them that that the whole point of this is to love God, to remember what he's done for them, and to obey him. And that's what God has required then, and that's what God requires now. That's actually a part of your Old Testament that is 100% the same now under under Christ as it was then under the law. Probably the most famous passage from this section is in chapter 6. Beginning in verse 4, this is called the Shema because that's the first word in Hebrew of this passage. Mm-hmm. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house. And at, and at your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to give your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Amen. Talk a little bit about the Shema then and now. Well, that's a great Great point. The Shema now is the fundamental confession of faith for Jews and, of course, 
uh, Christians would agree with that too, is the word Shema means here. So here, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And so it's talking, there's some uh, disagreements about how that's translated, but not disagreements as to its accuracy, but disagreements as to how it's best translated to get this idea, is that there is only one real God, and it is Yahweh. It is the Lord, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob and of Israel and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what it's trying to say is this is the fundamental confession of faith, is that you are not pagans, you are not polytheists, you are yoked, if you will, you are in covenant with the one true God of the universe. And so then it was considered to be uh, maybe not as important as it is today in the sense that it was in the context of Deuteronomy, they understood that, yes, we don't think there was a, oh, a bunch of coincidences that brought us out of Exodus. We don't think there were different gods that worked and helped us along the way. We think there was one God. But today, the Shema is recited every morning by Orthodox Jews, and it is the fundamental confession of the Jewish faith is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the one true God of the universe. You know, the second thing I'd say about this, and you can jump in if you want, is this, as it goes on, it talks about, you know, you'll love the Lord your God with all your uh, soul and with all your might, with all your heart, and you shall talk about God. You'll talk about his precepts when you lie down, when you rise, bind them as a sign on your head and on your hand, which explains why Orthodox Jews take that quite literally and put a little box on their forehead and a little box on their hands uh, several times during the day to pray. But the point I'd make is this. Yahweh says, I'm not just a guy like the Greek gods, for example, who swooped in to help you and then went back to Mount Olympus and you guys go on with your life. You actually see in this a relational component. God said, I'm your God who not only rescued you, but I'm going to literally walk with you. We are going to have a relationship going forward. And I think that's different, obviously, than gods of that era or gods of the Greek world or the Roman world. But it also foreshadows a little bit the idea of Jesus Christ and God with us and actually having a relationship. So you don't just have God saying, I'm going to be your God, so build some temples and do some stuff, and several times a year, make sure you honor me. He says, no, we're going to walk together. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. Mm. I think that's a huge takeaway that's pertinent for reading any Old Testament book, but especially books about the law, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, partially because we're tempted in a lot of ways to read the Old Testament through the first century Pharisees. Right. And uh, we forget that actually one of Jesus' main criticisms of the Pharisees was that they had gotten the law wrong. You know, when Jesus argues with them, he's not arguing and saying, hey, guys, uh, your, your learning is great and everything, but the Old Testament is wrong. No, he, he says the scripture cannot be broken. You right. have misinterpreted. You've missed the heart of the law. He, he says this had to have been the most frustrating thing for them because it was so insulting to their pride and their ego. But exactly. Jesus says over yep. and over, have you not read what it says in the Old <laughs> Testament? Speaking of the book of Deuteronomy, usually. 
Um, right. So for him to critique them and say, hey, you missed it. But then a lot of times we read Deuteronomy like the Pharisees were right, that this is a legalistic, earn your way to God's approval type of system. And when you really read the book of Deuteronomy on its own terms, you realize this is actually the same kind of relationship. Granted, it has different stipulations for the way that the Israelites are living in the presence of God and the right. way that he's interacting with them. But but it's the same kind of relationship we see perfected in Christ in the New Testament. So I would challenge everybody who's reading this to say, don't think about as much what's different here in Deuteronomy, because that's going to pop out at you pretty pretty sure. easily. Right. I would think a little bit more about what is the same in the first part of Deuteronomy as it is in the New Testament. What are the things that actually haven't changed at all. The character of God, the love that he has for his people, the things that he's calling his people to do, uh, the kinds of people he's calling them to be. Where are the similarities in right. the first part of Deuteronomy? That's That would be my challenge. Exactly. So we move on from the first four chapters as a historical prologue and overview. Chapters 5 through 26 are the main part of the speech that Moses is giving. Uh, people are divided as they outline this as to whether or not uh, 1 through 4 is one speech and 5 through 26 is another speech, or if there are two parts of one speech, it's, it's difficult to tell. Uh, but, but I think in, in chapter 5, he begins a new speech. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules. So 5 through 26 is the second speech that we get. That one is really the retelling of the law, the recapitulation of the statutes. We move from that into a covenantal section in the 20s that spans from that speech into the second uh, half of it, or the third speech, which is 27 through 30. Then we wrap up with a section at the end, 31 through 34, on the succession of leadership from Moses to Joshua. As you go through here, the, the book has different sections, there's different themes, but I want to make sure we have some time to talk about takeaways and what we should be seeing, how we should be reading, and how actually reading the book of Deuteronomy might help us read the rest of our Bible. Great point. You know, there are a couple of passages I'll just sort of pick out. Um, maybe Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12. Let me read a couple verses there. And now, O Israel, and listen to this with New Testament ears, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and statues of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. I mean, as I read that, I think to myself, oh my goodness, I can hear the Great Commission you know, go into all the world, teach, uh, make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. I mean, that's exactly what it's talking to here. Jesus repeating, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's exactly what I'm reading here. And so the purpose of God's covenant people, whether it's Israel or whether it's the church, really doesn't have a different uh, basis, if you will. I think it has the same basis. And then again in chapter 11, he sets forth a, a dualistic way of seeing the world, which I think Jesus did the same thing. You can, you can serve God or you can serve money. 
Uh, you know, you can be blessed because you're poor in spirit, or you can think you're blessed because you're rich. I mean, he basically set up this dualistic idea of the world's way of seeing things or God's way of seeing things. In 1126, it says this. Moses says, See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God. The curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your gods and go after other gods that aren't real. And so I see a lot of connection here, uh, and I think you make a great point. When we read this, we think of, oh, these are ancient laws, you know, like the Code of Hammurabi or other ancient laws. But really, it's the same God with the same relational priorities. I mean, what would you, what would you say? Well, I would say the exact same thing. We don't diminish the differences in what God was saying to the Israelites and what he's saying to the church. Uh, but we need to we need to be careful to guard against this implicit way that we speak that sounds as if God has changed uh, right. because God is the same and the covenants are different, but they come from the same character. The heart of God for his people is the same. Uh, I, I want to end here in a moment just talking about the, the continuity between what Christ says and how much of Deuteronomy is in the words of Christ that transcends the Old and the New Testaments. Uh, but, but this relational focus in chapter 10, of course, as you quoted, and then later on, there's the really famous passages in 29 and 30 of choose this day, life or death, blessings right. or curses. Yeah. Uh, and then we see that again in Joshua in a famous passage. There really is the sense that God's saying, what kind of people are you going to be? What kind of nation are you going to be, the one exactly. I've called you to be, or the one that you were in the wilderness? And, you know, you hear people say a lot, this is kind of a Christian cliche, that uh, the time in the wilderness wasn't, the, uh, wasn't getting the Israelites out of Egypt, it was getting the Egypt out of the Israelites. But you do see a lot of that in the, the middle part of the book of Deuteronomy, is God is actually trying to transform his people into being a different kind of people, and they're resistant to it, and we're resistant to it today. Right. Now, the mechanism is, is slightly different, law versus spirit, and we'll get into that when we get into the letters of Paul and uh, some of the prophets later. But one, one thing I just wanted to mention, just because I like it, uh, before, before we wrap up with the messianic part of this, is, is in chapter 34. Now, Moses is, is one of the most fascinating people in the entire Bible, especially in this time period. When you think about all that Moses did and went through, and, I mean, he, oh, he and God yeah. had a very, very interesting relationship, one that we actually don't see anything like it until we get to Christ. There, there's, there's parts of this we'll, we'll cover when we get to the book of Numbers as well, but I want to read chapter 34, or parts of it at least, to just stop for a moment and, and think about the end of Moses' life. It says, Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. So he's, he's looking into the promised land at this point. Right. <clears throat> and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, the plain that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I will let you see it here with your eyes, but you shall never go over there. 
So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. This is, this is really fascinating. Yes. The he there is referring to God. Yes. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit and wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Yes. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his lands, and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. Mm. What a great tribute to Moses. And, and the thing that you have to realize when you're reading this is somebody other than Moses obviously wrote this. Sure. Or, or maybe the Spirit allowed him to write it in a, in a prophetic sense. But I think uh-huh. it's likely that somebody else wrote this about Moses, guided by the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And either way, you get this sense that God actually does the eulogy at Moses' funeral. That this, is this is This is Moses' obituary for all time here at the end of Deuteronomy, and it's written by God. And the thing that I think is interesting about that is is God tells us the things that he thinks were the most important about Moses. Right. Uh, one of those I would just put put my finger on is in verse 10. The, the distinguishing quality of Moses was that he, he knew the Lord face to face. Yeah. And you certainly see that. There's, there's ways that Moses and, and God interact with each other, just as there are ways that David and God interact with each other, and Elijah and, and Jesus and Paul and other characters of the Bible, that I stand here and I think, you know, that's not been my experience with God. That's, yeah. that's not the way that I, that I walk with God. And God is even, is even saying that in this section, that Moses, the thing about Moses that was so unique is that he, he knew the Lord face to face. In Numbers it says... The Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. Yeah. Just unique here at the end of Deuteronomy. And you know, and I, I think of that phrase, face-to-face, as uh, I'll take a little liberty here and just conjecture, but it seems to me that that implies a transparency, if you will, and mm-hmm. certainly on God's side in the sense that he made himself known to Moses like no one else up to that time. Mm-hmm. But then also Moses was completely transparent before God. And you, you made a good point, Cole, and I've thought about that a lot, is when I stand before God, do I realize how completely transparent I truly am? Mm-hmm. And if I embrace that, then I, can I say that I have seen God face to face? Meaning I know that I know intellectually he knows everything about me, but do I truly bring that kind of transparency to God? And, you know, right. Moses is uh, maybe the first first person, perhaps after Abraham, who brought that kind of transparency to God. Absolutely. Yeah, if you think of the greats of the Old Testament, they're not, they, they, they do great works. If you think about Noah and, and Abraham and you think about Moses. But it, in, in, and Moses' great works are mentioned here, but they're mentioned in the context of something even greater than the works themselves, right. which is that he knew God in a certain way, that he had a relationship with God, that he was transparent before God. 
And what's, what's really fascinating to me is when we get into the New Testament, Paul comes back and, and talks about Moses. And in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he talks about beholding the glory of the gospel of Christ. And he references the story where uh, Moses has the veil upon his face. And uh, Moses has seen God, but the people actually haven't seen God. And in the end of chapter 3, he says, When we turn to the Lord, the veil is actually removed, and now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all now, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of God and are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We actually get to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in a way that Moses got to see, but the Israelites didn't. Right. Um, and so we read passages like this and we think, man, how could I ever be like Moses? And, and Paul's saying, if you're a Christian because of the spirit in your life, you actually have the same opportunity that Moses did. That, that's, that's a really pretty amazing. staggering, yeah. pretty staggering thing to read. Uh, but, but I want to end talking a little bit about how the book of Deuteronomy helps us read the rest of the Bible. And I'll, I'll say one thing about the Old Testament, and then I'd love for you to talk about the messianic aspect of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, if you want to put it in context, is the Romans of the Old Testament. Mm. So we think of Romans as this extended theological argument. And and when we do the book of Romans, we'll talk a little bit about how it it actually functions. But uh, the entire New Testament revolves in certain ways around the Gospels on the one hand and then the book of Deuteronomy on the other or the book of Romans on the other. And in the same way, Deuteronomy is the anchor of the Old Testament. So you have, it's the last book of the Pentateuch. So the first five books all lead up to Deuteronomy. It is, it is the summary statement of what's happened beforehand. It is the marching orders into the promised land, which takes right. up the middle section of your Old Testament. And like we mentioned earlier, there's a coherence from the time of the entry into Canaan until the exit of Canaan in, in the exile. And then there's a restoration of the promises of Deuteronomy in the books that are written after the exile. That uh, is God going to fulfill his promise or is he not? Right. And the promises referred to there would be the promises that are that are spoken in the book of Deuteronomy. So in some ways, if, if you understand the book of Deuteronomy, if you're familiar with it, the rest of the Old Testament is referencing it or is in relationship with it in some way or another. Now, how does it help us read our New Testaments? That's a, that's a great summary, by the way, and a great question. Uh, several things. Let me just point out a couple of connections here to you. One is in Deuteronomy 18.15. This is a well-known verse. Uh, it says, God will raise up a prophet like me, says Moses, from among your brothers, meaning a Jew. You must listen to him. Now, that's long been, and I don't mean Christians, I mean Jews as well, long been understood as a messianic prophecy. Well, that says two things. Number one, that the story of Israel doesn't end here. That this is a covenant community, a people who are defined by their relationship with God, and that God has something else planned in the future. And then the part you read in Deuteronomy 34 is, uh, there's not arisen a prophet in uh, Israel like Moses, the very end of the book. 
the Lord knew him face to face. And listen to this, none like him for all the signs and wonders. Think about how many times in the New Testament you hear about Jesus performing signs and wonders. Uh, what he sent him to do in the land of Egypt and for all the mighty power and great deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. I think it's Tim Keller that uh, says this so well. He says, Moses is a foreshadowing of Christ. He, Jesus is the true and better Moses, is the way I believe he says it. So that's no disrespect to Moses. What it means is what God did with Israel through the prophet Moses he will do on a cosmic scale for all of humanity through Jesus Christ, his son. And I think you see a lot of connections here. Well, what does that say to us? It says that what's happening here with Israel through the Exodus and through Deuteronomy is not an end in itself. It is a foretaste of something else that's coming. Second point, if you remember early uh, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he goes into the desert and he fasts and he is tempted by Satan. And Satan basically tempts him three times. And if you remember, Jesus answers each temptation with a scripture. And those three scriptures come from Deuteronomy. Uh, one of them is, uh, it is the Lord your God that you shall fear and him only shall you serve. When Satan says, hey, bow down before me, I'll give you everything. Uh, another one out of chapter 6, also out of chapter 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test when Satan says, hey, throw yourself down. I'm sure his angels will take care of you. And then finally, out of chapter 8 of Deuteronomy, man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. When Satan said to him, hey, turn these stones into bread. You're hungry and you can eat. And I think there's a uh, really a layer going on here. On the, on the surface, you see Satan tempting Jesus and Jesus answering with Scripture, which is a great lesson for us, by the way, that we should have Scripture so inscribed on our hearts and in our minds that perhaps we could do the same. But in a more clever way, I think what Jesus is saying to Satan is, hey, Satan, do you remember where these Scriptures come from? They come from Deuteronomy. They come from the time when Israel is about to enter the promised land. They're about to inherit the promises of God. God has freed them from slavery, and God is making them into a covenant people. And I think Jesus is so brilliantly, cleverly saying, that's exactly what I'm about to do. What do you think? How does that connect with Jesus' ministry to you? I always love the when you when you hear Jesus quoting scripture in the wilderness when he's being tempted, and you go back and you read it in context, you realize that God has always sustained His people, and He always will sustain His people. He is He is forming, like you said, a covenant community of people that He's never going to forsake. Amen. And as you read the Old Testament, you see the exile, you see the nation of Israel demolished. And then you see this hope that's prophesied. Mm -hmm. And uh, as historically the Israelites did regain the promised land and some prominence in the promised land, that was never actually 
the extent of the promise. Right. The promise to Abraham is that through his people, he's going to bless the nations of the earth. And Christ comes in and fulfills that promise through the church, through the people of God, the entire world is going to be blessed. I mean, I just think of the yeah. the way that the book of Deuteronomy portrays the covenant people being blessed and the promised land fulfilling their needs and all of that. And then I think of the end of the Bible where God says that he is actually going to provide so richly that we don't, we don't even need a son anymore because... Right. The glory of the Lord and of the Lamb is going to be the light, and the nations are going to come into the to the new city of Jerusalem, which the the Israelites at this point don't even know what Jerusalem will be like on earth, but uh, right. they certainly didn't know what the new Jerusalem would be like in in eternity with God. But He says the nations are going to come into the new city of Jerusalem and bring their glory and their treasure with them, and it will become the glory of the Lord. So one of the one of the big takeaways for me from the book of Deuteronomy is just to see the character of God, to see the way that he's provided for his people in the past, to see the things that he promises, and then to understand that we are not just heirs of those promises. We are heirs right. of all the promises of God from Abraham, from the garden before that, to the end of time in the New Jerusalem. Yeah, if that doesn't give you a sense of the awe of God and his love for us, nothing will. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.